At the time of the Franz Ferdinand assassination, the Austro-Hungarian Empire was not in good shape. It lacked unity within the empire. There was concern among the leaders about the lack of unity among the many different people groups that the empire was in control of. Now, most evidently, this was seen in the assassination itself of Ferdinand, something we went over on the last episode, and that is the ethnic identity of the Serbian people, which had played a big role in the decision of people like Princip and the other conspirators to assassinate Franz Ferdinand. And this sort of lack of a unity among the empire was a big concern to the Austrian leaders. They wanted to do something to bring back respect in the empire. Some thought war would be the answer to this. Others thought a renewed trust and fear in the monarchy, in the Habsburg family, the royal family. And when Ferdinand was assassinated, this seemed to present for many of these Austrian leaders the perfect chance to do this. They could get back at Serbia and shut them down and thereby bring respect back to the empire and shut them down so much so that it would strike fear into the other conspirators and to others who had plans to take down the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And this is what we'll look at today. We're going to look at the Austrian response to the Franz Ferdinand incident. Many historians have concluded that it is here, it is in this initial response to this initial response from Austria that the ball rolling towards war was not only officially started, but became out of control. Welcome to the Points of No Return in History. My name is Dave Knoll, and today we are going to be covering the Austrian response to the Franz Ferdinand assassination with a closer look at the Austro-Hungarian culpability in the outbreak of World War I. This is the second episode of my series on the July Crisis of 1914. Like I mentioned before, there were many within the leadership of Austria that were initially very hawkish, that is, who initially really wanted to start a war with Serbia immediately upon hearing the news of the Franz Ferdinand assassination. One of these was a fellow by the name of Franz Conrad. He was the Austria-Hungary Army Chief of Staff, and he had been clamoring for a war with Serbia for a long time, because it wasn't just the assassination of Ferdinand that had revealed a Serbian dislike of Austro-Hungarian of the presence of Austro-Hungary in the Balkans. Uh, there had been hostility between Serbia and Austria-Hungary for a while at this point, and people like Conrad wanted to use or wanted to put Serbia in its place, if you will. And so, of course, upon hearing this news, it didn't take any convincing for people like Conrad to want to immediately mobilize for war against Serbia and strike Serbia. He didn't even need to wait for a report from Sarajevo about whether or not Serbian authorities were actually uh, involved in the conspiracy to kill Franz Ferdinand. Uh, Austria would do this. They would send down investigators to try to put together a report, not so much in an objective way, not so much to, you know, see, are, is, is, were Serbian authorities actually guilty or not? It actually, in retrospect, looks more like they did it uh, as a pretext or as a, as a reason to go to war with Serbia. 
It didn't take much for for them to want to do this. It didn't take much for them to pin the assassination on Serbia, especially people like Conrad. As I've thought about how those in Austria were acting right after the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, the more it seems that they were just heading in a certain direction, heading towards something that they had already decided, something they had already made up in their mind to do, and that is to get back at Serbia, to essentially, yeah, get back at Serbia, start a war with Serbia, invade Serbia, do something using the military, using their military. You know how when you are looking for a reason to do something, as opposed to, you know, taking in evidence and then making a decision, uh, you know how sometimes when you already in your gut know that you there's something that you want to do and your brain will just justify things so as to see that what it is you really want to happen sometimes this might even happen a little bit subconsciously where you already know what it is you want and you aren't taking in facts and evidence and making decisions based on the best way they will lead rather you know what you want and so then you after the fact then make justifications And I can't help but think this is partly how Austria was acting in this time. Again, I I put a disclaimer on that, fully acknowledging that this is over a hundred years after the fact, and I wasn't in those rooms, or I wasn't, you know, part of Austrian leadership. I didn't know what it felt like to have one of your own assassinated like that from Serbia. But it still, it, it seems that, you know, they were acting in a way that was somewhat rash, and in a way that seemed like it was uh, self-justifying. The Austrian emperor, Franz Joseph, didn't have the most sympathetic response to the death of his nephew, Franz Ferdinand. Uh, and like I mentioned in the last episode, uh, Franz Ferdinand had uh, kind of ruffled the feathers of the Habsburgs with his decision to marry his wife, Sophie, because she didn't come from royal blood. And this is what he is supposedly said when he heard about the news of the Franz Ferdinand assassination. Horrible, horrible. It is God's will. This last part, uh, the quote, it is God's will, could easily have reflected Franz Joseph's somewhat negative or lukewarm feelings towards, towards his nephew. Still, the emperor Franz Joseph, from pretty much the beginning, seems like uh, he wanted something to be done about the situation in Serbia. Another key player was Count Leopold von Berchtold. And Berchtold was the foreign minister of Austria-Hungary, and it wasn't expected that he was going to take a hawkish approach to the Franz Ferdinand assassination in regards to uh, Austrian, the Austrian approach, whether or not they would go to war with Serbia. And this is because he had historically taken a more passive role in the possibility of starting a war in the Balkans. He had chances to, to push for this earlier with some of the, the Balkan wars. The, we mentioned this last time, but there were in the previous few years before this, there were uh, a chance for Austria to get involved in some of the Balkan wars, uh, the wars between the Balkan League, countries like Serbia and Bulgaria against uh, the Turkish Ottomans, but he had decided to sit, sit out of it. And so there was concern among the hawks in the Austrian staff of, you know, what Berchtold would do this time. 
much to their happy surprise, he actually came out in favor very early on of a strong response against Serbia. Now, what would, what would hold them back from a strong response? A lot of it had to do with whether or not Germany would support an Austrian war with Serbia. And this was because of the complicated entanglement of the alliances that existed in Europe at this time. This is kind of how it goes. You had the Triple Alliance, which was what became known as the Central Powers in World War I. And that is an alliance between Germany, Austria-Hungary, and Italy. And then you had the Triple Entente, which was a system of alliances between Russia, France, and England. And you can see how this system might cause a massive war. You had major European powers all involved in alliances that more or less equally stacked the deck between each other. You had the massive manpower of Russia. You had the military expertise of a Germany and then you have strong armies of France and Britain, all with pledges to back one another in the event of war. You could see how the many years prior to 1914 and the outbreak of war, there were many within Europe who could foresee the consequences of something triggering war. So what you had with Austria was, if they were going to attack Serbia, they wanted to be sure that Germany would back them up. And this was because there was concern that if Austria attacked Serbia, that the Russians would come in to back Serbia and defend Serbia from Austrian aggression. Russia had been known to back Serbia in this time because of uh, similar ethnic identities. Uh, Russia wanted to defend the Slavic people. Serbia was a nation of Slavs. But then there was also this idea that Russia had long wanted to get involved, more involved in the Balkans, especially there was this idea that they could expand the empire all the way to Constantinople uh, because this would help with uh, some of their trade. As you know, Russia is, uh, is right on the border of the Black Sea, which has an outlet right through Constantinople. And so because Austria knew that there was a chance that Russia might get involved, they would want German backing. Austria knew its military capability wouldn't be able to withstand a multi-front war in this case between both Serbia and Russia. And so they knew that they needed to get German support. And the, there was, in the immediate aftermath of the Franz Ferdinand assassination, this was a big question. Would Germany actually support Austria, Austrian aggression in the Balkans? And the one person who they needed to get approval from was Kaiser Wilhelm II. Berchtold at this time was actually on board with a war against Serbia, and he knew he would need to get Kaiser Wilhelm's approval for this. Something that would come up over and over again in this time period was how Berchtold would function in trying to bring about a war with Serbia, while at the same time trying to keep his intentions private. He didn't want to tip off the fact what it was he was trying to do because this would take away the element of surprise they would have with Serbia and it would also reduce the amount of time a country like Russia would have to mobilize itself for war if they didn't know Austrian intentions. 
And so he knew he needed to get Kaiser Wilhelm's approval, but the question was, how could he communicate with Wilhelm and, and keep it secret at the same time? He had hoped that he was going to be able to do this at the funeral of Franz Ferdinand in Vienna, but unfortunately, Wilhelm, and for that matter, no other European statesman showed up for it. And the reason Wilhelm didn't show up was out of concern for his own safety. You see, this was, as historians have written about this in the past, they have shown how this was somewhat embarrassing for a country like Austria, to where someone like Wilhelm wouldn't even show up for a funeral out of fear for his own life from a political assassination, because they couldn't even have protected their own, Franz Ferdinand. And so this was no longer a possibility for Berchtold to talk to Kaiser Wilhelm. It was no longer possible for him to talk to him at the funeral, but he knew he needed to talk to him soon, because, you see, Kaiser Wilhelm was known to be somewhat of an emotional guy, and and he was friends with Franz Ferdinand, and so he knew that the longer it went without talking to him, the less likely it would be to capture Kaiser Wilhelm in his emotional state of being upset and mad at the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. Uh, the more upset Wilhelm would be, the more likely it would have been to say, yes, Germany will support Austrian aggressiveness in Ser- in Serbia because, you know, those Serbs, I can't believe they had the, the guts, the will to assassinate my friend, Franz Ferdinand, someone that you can't have the royal throne attacked like this. I myself, Kaiser Wilhelm, am a monarch. This was known as the monarchical principle, this idea that the this is seems somewhat foreign to us now, but uh, it was very big deal a hundred years ago, this idea before the fall of many monarchies uh, as a result of World War I, this idea of the monarchical principle, this idea that the king or the queen were special people and within themselves they held societies, they held countries together. You know, you had the rise of democracy in many of these places and that didn't happen overnight. There was a, even as parliaments came into play, you still had the kings and the queens who wanted to hold on to their power and in this idea that that they in themselves represented the people represented the country and so Berchtold wanted to capture Wilhelm in his angriest state and he knew that he had to do this soon while it was more still more likely that Wilhelm would still hold on to some of this rage and anger over the murder of his friend and fellow royal he didn't have the chance to do this at the funeral And so he knew he needed to go to Germany, go to Berlin himself to talk to Wilhelm. Now, he actually couldn't do it himself because, like I said, he was trying to keep the whole thing a secret. And this would raise alarm bells, this idea of the Austrian foreign minister going to Berlin, going to its ally to talk. Of course, word would get out about what was happening, and this would raise alarm bells and questions all across Europe. You know, why was he doing this? Did Austria have something in store for Serbia? And so he came up with the solution. Berchtold came up with the solution. He also didn't trust the official diplomat, Austrian diplomat in Germany, a man by the name, and I'm going to really butcher this name, Sogany. He didn't trust him because he was older, and he, didn't, he just didn't trust that he would fully be able to explain Austrian intentions in Serbia. And so Berchtold had a different idea. His plan was to send his assistant, Count Alexander Hoyas. This has become known as the Hoyas trip to Berlin, and this is one of the key moments in the July crisis. 
you know, we're still in the timeline, still early on in the July crisis. The assassination happens on June 28th, 1914. And at this point, we're still in early July. So Hoyas has his plan. He takes a train to Berlin, and his plan is to get Wilhelm on board with Austrian intentions to start a war with Serbia and for Germany to back Austria up in this. Hoyas goes to Berlin and he meets with Jogany and they lay out a plan. In just a, that same day that he arrived, Jogany was to meet with Kaiser Wilhelm and he would hand Wilhelm a note from Franz Joseph. And in this note, without actually explicitly saying the word war, it became clear what Austrians' intentions were at this point. Wilhelm read the note, and he immediately picked up on what it was Austria wanted to do. He knew that this was a request for Germany to back up Austria in a war against Serbia. At first, Wilhelm seems noncommittal. He says that he, he would have to speak with his chancellor, a man who was also very important to the story named Bethman Holweg. But Shogunny, you know, he has experience working with Kaiser Wilhelm, and so he knows that he doesn't have to have an answer right in this very moment, but he knew that the way Wilhelm thought that this idea would work his way around in Kaiser Wilhelm's head, and in that the more he, he would think about it, the more he might remember how angry he was at the assassination of Ferdinand, and he might come around to the idea of actually backing up Austria at this time. So Shogunny and Wilhelm are having lunch and dessert and coffee, and what do you know, Wilhelm keeps thinking. And then he keeps talking. And what do you know, next thing he says is he strongly implies, he actually says that, yes, Germany will have Serbia's back. This was great news for Shogunny and Hoyas and Austrian officials who wanted war. And it became known as the blank check that Wilhelm and Germany gave to Austria to start a war with Serbia. Many historians say that this blank check is the sort of point of no return for World War I. It is at this moment that the ball starts rolling towards war that it becomes harder and harder to stop it. Because what you have here is the chance for Austria now, knowing that at least verbally, Wilhelm has supported the idea of an Austrian war. Austria has its chance to get back at Serbia. Historians talk about this blank check moment as being a crossroads moment. One of those points are pretty early in July still that really made a big difference in pushing the European powers towards war. I just want to pause on this for a minute and think about, you know, what might have happened if Germany at this point had not offered a quote blank check as scholars call it. I think if they hadn't have done this, Austria would have had a much harder time getting to the point where they were going to attack Serbia, or even sending the ultimatum that they ended up sending to Serbia, the ultimatum that really gave Serbia no choice but to reject it. And this is because without Germany's backing, Tisa the one who was really the most adamant that Austria-Hungary used diplomacy rather than arms to settle the conflict with Serbia, this would have really put a damper on him sort of converting to the war position if Germany hadn't given the blank check. 
Well, and this is because without German promise of support, the Triple Entente looks a lot more formidable against just Austria-Hungary. Is it possible that without German support, Austria-Hungary still could have fought a war against Serbia? To support this case, I guess, it does seem that Austria was pretty single-mindedly focused on bringing about some kind of rectification for the assassination of Ferdinand. And this is because, as I talked about, it does seem that Austria-Hungary was pretty solely focused on some kind of military action against Serbia at this point. In support of this idea that this was a this blank check was a huge turning point moment, it, it does seem, you know, given the given the military prowess of the Triple Entente, it does seem pretty hard to think that Austria-Hungary would have started a war with Serbia, given that uh, Russia would uh, back up Serbia militarily, and that is if Austria didn't have German support. Now, within this same time period, there's even more good news for people like Berktold and Conrad and those who wanted war with Serbia. And this is that their investigators in Sarajevo have now found some ties with Serbian officials with the assassination of Ferdinand. One of these is the, are the, the Serbian officials at the border with, with Bosnia who aided the people like Princip from being able to cross the border. And probably the biggest find... They still didn't uncover anything about Apis, which, you know, he was one historians have really pointed to as the Serbian military intelligence who was sort of behind the plot. But they did find that a Serbian military member, Tankasic, had actually trained the assassins on how to use weapons. And like I said before, they weren't looking for much, but this was plenty for them to go on to tie Serbian authorities with the assassination of Ferdinand. So this is great news for them because the investigators had uncovered this. All seemed to be going great for Austria. They could now mobilize their troops. They could they could start a war with Serbia to get put Serbia back in its place for for messing with the Austrian Hungary. They could reestablish themselves as a strong empire. It didn't need to worry about its itself breaking up. And they knew they had German backing especially in case Russia became involved to defend Serbia. However, as it soon became clear, there were obstacles that Austria had to get through. One of these was the Hungarian minister-president, Count Stefan Tisa, who was opposed to going to war. And so they have to get Tisa on board with war because, after all, he represents half of the dual monarchy. It's Austria-Hungary, not just austria and Tisa is opposed at first for a number of reasons. He's nervous about a multi-front war. He doesn't think Austria is strong enough to do this. He doesn't like the idea of Austria relying so heavily on Germany. And he has more, more concerns elsewhere. You know, he's convinced, especially as the reports come in about some of the authorities of Serbia and some of their involvement in the assassination of Ferdinand. And, and he, he does see value in, in not just ignoring the whole thing altogether, but he takes the approach of more, no, we need to use diplomacy. We need to get Serbia to admit what it did was wrong. Now, of course, this wasn't enough for people like Conrad and Berktold. They want actual war and actual concessions for Serbia, what had happened. Uh, initially, you know, they come up with this plan of, of invading Serbia and not necessarily taking the land for themselves. They wanted 
some of the more strategic geography of Serbia, but of splitting up Serbian territory among some of the other Balkan states. And this doesn't sit well with Tisa. And so they have to try to get Tisa on board. And they try to do this at a famous council in Vienna following the Hoyas trip to Berlin. Try to picture yourself in the room at this war council. Just think about being there with all of the ministers, the military officials, the important people trying to figure out what's going to happen. This is one of those sort of fly-on-the-wall moments where I wish I could have been there to witness it. It's often in these rooms where history is decided. You have to be sitting there knowing that something monumental is being decided. This is where the, the idea of an ultimatum being sent to Serbia comes into play. And this is Tiza's idea. His idea is to say, hey, Serbia, we know you're involved with this plot to kill Ferdinand. We need to do something. Here are a list of demands that we want in return. Because of Tiza's power at the table, Berktold can't really get around it. And so he has to come on board with this idea of an ultimatum. However, it actually ends up being okay from his standpoint because he can word the ultimatum so strongly that it would never be accepted by Serbia. They would have to reject it. And so he can still see his plan through. Even at this point, if Austria can start putting together an ultimatum and they can word it so strongly that Serbia would have no choice but to reject it and they can start preparing for war, they think, okay, we can, we can do this. We can start mobilizing even with these restrictions that Tisa puts in place. But more problems present themselves. One of these is the fact that many men of the Austro-Hungarian army have been sent home to help with the, the crops in the Austro-Hungarian countryside. Uh, the men have gone home to help with the farming and the agriculture. And so all of a sudden now, a big percentage of the army is no longer even able to be mobilized. And so this presents a problem, again, because of this idea of secrecy and wanting to have the element of surprise on their side. If the Austrian authorities call back the men from what was called the harvest leave, if they call them back from the harvest leave, the rest of Europe would know something's going on. If you have these thousands and thousands and thousands of men boarding trains and uh, they knew that there was something was up, but they were pre preparing to attack. And so they had this problem. They had to wait until the harvest leave was over before they could send the ultimatum, send the note to Serbia. You also had the problem of the French-Russian being allies with each other. In mid-July, the French president, pardon my mispronunciation of this or my American-English pronunciation of this, but Raymond Poincaré, he had a trip planned to go to St. Petersburg in Russia to meet with the Tsar Nicholas to steady up their alliance with each other. This is a problem for Austria because if they send their ultimatum when the French and the Russians are together in person, this would give the French and the Russians the advantage of being able to talk strategy and decide what to do in the same room. The Austrians wanted to avoid this possibility. And so they had to come up with the right time to send the ultimatum. And what they end up deciding is to send it while Poincaré is on his ship from St. Petersburg back to France, and therefore in a poor position to communicate or to receive communication. And this would also, so this would be after the, his meeting with Nicholas, and it would also be after the harvest leave was over. And so the Austrian troops would be 
available to mobilize. And so as you can see, the Austrian dream initially of a quick strike on Serbia is rapidly going away. They have to wait weeks until they can do this, until they can send the ultimatum. There will be another potential problem in this plan, and that is it all depended upon secrecy. Because if the French or the Russians found out, then the whole idea of a surprise attack, the idea that they wouldn't be able to plan together in person, all that goes out the window. And what do you know? There's a leak of the information. As historian Sean McMeekin notes, Berktold himself would be the cause of the leak. He's trying to keep secret Austria-Hungary's plan of an ultimatum being sent to Serbia. And even more importantly, he's trying to keep secret any of the intentions Austria-Hungary had towards Serbia. And he's specifically hoping to keep it a secret from Serbia's potential allies, including possibly most prominently Russia. The leak happens when Berktold goes for advice from a retired Austrian statesman. And this happened when Berktold asks this retired statesman to be a part of, or at least listen in to, some of the talks surrounding what Austria was going to do in response to Serbia. And this is what McMeekin notes where Berktold went wrong. And that is that he trusted this statesman to keep this a secret. And he wasn't clear enough, or possibly not even clear at all, that he expected all of this to be kept a secret. And this retired statesman gets worried when he hears this talk, and he's determined to bring it up with someone else. The person he decides to talk to just happens to be his neighbor, and that is Sir Maurice de Bunsen. De Bunsen was the British ambassador in Vienna. And of course, upon revealing, upon receiving this knowledge, he immediately takes it back home to Britain. Thankfully for Berchtold's sake, the British don't seem too interested in this. However, this would not be the case with another country that learns of this, and that is Russia. De Bunsen, in addition to informing his superiors back home in Britain, he also happened to tell the news he had gotten to the Russian ambassador in Vienna. Now this is the first sort of sign that makes Russia suspicious, but they actually, there are actually more signs that Russia starts to uncover that makes them worried. And one of these comes from their decoders, their intelligence agency that had successfully decoded Austrian messages. And around this time, Berktold messages his embassy in Russia, and he asks what is a curious question to the Russian decoders. He asks specifically at what time the French president would be leaving St. Petersburg. Remember, this had been a trip that Poincaré had planned to come shore up the French alliance with Russia in St. Petersburg. And it is of note to the Austrians because they're trying to time it correctly when they're going to send their ultimatum to Serbia so as to catch the French and the Russians in a place where it would be hard for them to strategize their response together. And the sort of perfect time for this to happen could very well possibly be when Poincaré is out at sea on his ship, traveling from Russia back home to France, because this would leave Poincaré in a position that would be, make communications difficult being out at sea. And so Berktold asks, you know, when is Poincaré actually going to be leaving? 
And this sparks Russian curiosity. Of course, this is on top of the information they had already received, and their alarm bells start flying. What are Austrian intentions with Serbia? Does Russia need to be concerned? Do they need to start planning a way to defend their ally, Serbia? Meanwhile, other tensions had been rising all across Europe in this time. Tensions rising because of the possibility of war, because of what Austria might do to respond to Serbia. And an example of this happens in Belgrade, Serbia, when the Austrian ambassador to Serbia meets with the Russian ambassador to Serbia. Try to stay with me on all this. I know it can be confusing. There's lots of different ambassadors and there's lots of different names. And I'm trying to keep it as simple as I can. But just for clarification, remember we're talking about now an Austrian ambassador in Belgrade, Serbia, who is meeting with a Russian ambassador in Serbia. So this doesn't have to do with the Serbs per se, but it happens to be taking place in Serbia. And here's what happens. The two are meeting together to discuss what had happened to Franz Ferdinand. There had been rumors circulating that the Russians hadn't shown the proper respect for the assassination of Ferdinand. And this, you know, quite possibly, if this were true, this would really upset the Austrians. But here, the two ambassadors are here just to talk things out. And what do you know, soon, quickly into their meeting, the Russian ambassador drops dead. He died from natural causes. He had had some health issues, but this doesn't help the perception of the situation. From an outsider looking in, especially one who might be amped up on the tensions of the time, especially, and especially one who might have be on the Russian or Serbian side of it, and might sus- have suspected foul play, might have suspected that Austria didn't have the best intentions. There might be the look that had the Austrians killed this man? And immediately rumors start swirling around of this kind within Serbia. The Austrian ambassador becomes known as a killer in the press, Serbian press. And that very night that it happened, the daughter of this Russian ambassador, she shows up and she's not having any sort of explanation. She investigates the room for any signs of that Austria had done anything to kill her father. She asked, had he eaten anything? Of course, suspicious of poisoning. And when she is told that all that had happened was that her father had been smoking a cigarette, she asks for the cigarette, of course, to go check for poison. The larger point of that I'm trying to make with this story is to show the, the tension that was in the air that was brewing in Europe at this time because of the possibility of war and because of bad blood being formed on both sides. The Austro-Hungarians would meet again for another war council, this time to finalize their plans. Remember, you have Tisa, who is the main sort of holdout, if you will, for at least trying to reduce the aggressiveness with which Austro-Hungary is going to respond to Serbia. But even he has now softened this stance. They are set on the idea of sending Serbia an ultimatum. Tiza, like I said, has softened his stance. The concessions that he asked for in this meeting are that Austria would refrain from annexing any Serbian territory. That is to say that their response to Serbia wouldn't be about taking more Serbian territory for themselves, but rather 
that it will be a, res- a response for rectification of Serbia's role in the assassination of Ferdinand. Berchtold and others go along with this. They go along with it not necessarily with the best of intentions. There's a famous quote that comes out of this that shows the way Austria was thinking, and it more or less what they were thinking was that, you know, by the time all of this dust settles from all this, are people really going to be remember what it was we said at the beginning of this, that we wouldn't annex territory? Uh, Serbia had, you know, they at the very least wanted to get some strategic territory out of all this, things like bridges and things like that. Here is the quote from Conrad, and this is what he says following the council. He says, quote, Well, we shall see. Before the Balkan War, the powers also talked about the status quo. After the war, nobody bothered himself about it. End quote. And so that's where Austria-Hungary stands at this point. They kind of have their plan in place. All that's left to be determined is how the Triple Entente would respond. Would Russia respond to, the, to this ultimatum against Serbia? Would France back up Russia? Would Britain back up Russia? These are the things that had yet to be determined for Austria-Hungary. The other important question is, would the information leak and the revelations uncovered by Russian intelligence about Austrian intentions, would that ruin things for the Austro-Hungarian plan? So where does that leave us in terms of Austro-Hungarian guilt? Was Austria-Hungary primarily guilty for the outbreak of war? Some scholars and some historians do hold this position. They take the, the view that Austria-Hungary was very responsible for the outbreak of war, perhaps even more responsible than other countries. It was sort of more or less held to be true that Austria-Hungary was primarily responsible in the academic literature surrounding this topic in the early years of, of writing, that is, in the first few decades right after the end of the war. And that's because some of the things are obvious about how they were responsible. They're the ones who, you know, send the ultimatum. They are the ones who respond harshly to the assassination of Ferdinand. They are the ones who get Germany involved. But the history took a turn in the mid-20th century by a historian named Fritz, a German historian named Fritz Fischer. He started focusing the history fully on Germany being responsible for the outbreak of war. I'm not going to go over all of the ways in which Germany is responsible for the outbreak of war right now. That's going to save for a, a later point in this series when I look more closely on kind of what Germany did to get the ball rolling towards war. But the Fisher hypothesis, the, the Fisher take on this, this view really holds sway in the academic literature, and there's a really sharp focus on Germany. But what happens a little bit later is that the tide starts to shift back again towards Austria-Hungary, sort of after this period in which Germany is looked at really closely. And a scholar who leads the way on this is by the name of Samuel R. Williamson Jr. And Williamson really refocuses on what it was that Austria-Hungary did to bring about war. You know, there's this debate, did Austria bring Germany in, or did Germany use Austria for its own intentions? And of course, I think it's a little bit of both, but for the sake of this argument today, what we're doing, looking at Austria-Hungary, if you look at them, they really use Germany to shore up any loose ends they might have about attacking Serbia. 
this really puts the onus on Austria-Hungary for bringing about war. You, you have the argument that they had been wanting to attack Serbia for a number of years at this point, um, especially a number of the more hawkish war ministers in the Austrian government, people like Conrad, and that the Franz Ferdinand assassination was just, you know, the, the perfect pretext they needed to do this. They were a sort of dying empire, if you will, that needed a jolt, needed something to unify them and to, and to bring back the glory days of a perceived strength. And then there's the argument that they sort of willfully ignored a lot of the things that would be bad, that a lot of the things that would possibly lead to a larger conflict, a conflict that wouldn't be contained to just a war between Austria and Serbia. The argument goes that at this point, Austro-Hungary kind of had a one-track mind, and they kind of willfully uh, ignored a lot of the possible warning signs, one of these being the very real possibility that Russia would respond in a way to defend Serbia, which would trigger, you know, German involvement and possibly other members of the Triple Entente like France and Britain. Historians are actually a little bit confused by this, why this possibility doesn't enter into the minds of the Austro-Hungarians more as they are, you know, sitting in these war councils discussing what it is they need to do against Serbia. Specifically, historians note the lack of concern about what Russia might do. They spe uh, Historians speculate that they feel assured that the Russians might hesitate to intervene because Austria has Germany's backing and that Russia wouldn't want to get involved with Germany in a war. There's also the speculation that Austro-Hungary is convinced that Tsar Nicholas II, the, the leader of Russia, might hold off on war because he would have sympathy for a fellow royal being murdered, and that royal being Franz Ferdinand. There's also the thought that Nicholas might want to be might be wary of war because at this time in his own country there's a lot of social unrest by the looming Russian Revolution and the the looming threat to his own uh, authority over Russia because of a lot of the uh, unrest in his own country and so that by going to war it might bring about more of a possibility of a revolution and of course this is uh, what ends up happening in Russia a few years later, uh, but that's a story for another day. Uh, but at least for the principles of this story, there's the thought that maybe Austria-Hungary is, is thinking that Nicholas doesn't want to get involved in something that might bring about more unrest to his own country. I think, obviously, there's a really good case to be made that Austria-Hungary acted in a way that wasn't fully responsible. Um, of course, that's easy for me to say with looking back on it a hundred years later and knowing fully what happened, but still, it does seem that like they acted with a certain level of tunnel vision to bring about what their version of rectification from Serbia was. Again, it's probably easier for me to say now, looking back now, I wasn't in the room, I didn't fully have the passion of anger about their perception, and in some ways it was true about their perception of what Serbian authorities had done to participate in the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, so it's easier for me to look back on it now, but still, when you think about the horrors of war, it does seem like they acted with a little bit of uh, inconsideration. You know, especially when you would hope that uh, diplomacy would have been able to solve some of the issues. It seems that the Austro-Hungarians really pushed 
Teza out, the one person in the room who really wanted to pursue diplomacy. Rather, they really pushed on towards a solution using arms. However, you know, this is only one among many things that brought about war. One of the many sort of turning points towards war. And they are hardly the only ones to blame. Regardless of how guilty Austria-Hungary was for the outbreak of World War I, at the end of that Second War Council in Vienna, when it's decided to send the ultimatum, when the text of the ultimatum has already been finalized, it seems that the plan was in motion, and a plan was in motion, but there were some things that could, pen- that could potentially derail it. One of these things was the secret being out to the Triple Entente about Austrian intentions. How would Russia respond to the knowledge about what it was that Austria-Hungary was planning to do? Would the visit between French President and Nicholas II, would that set up doom for Austria-Hungary? This is what we'll explore on the next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Points of No Return in History. My name is Dave Knoll. I want to cite Sean McMeekin's book, July 1914, as well as Christopher Clark's, Christopher Clark's book, The Sleepwalkers. And there are a number of articles that I am putting in the info below, so please check those out as well. I have a new website, uh, historywithdavenoll.com. Please check that out. Please do rate and review the podcast, and please share it with your friends. And contact me. My contact information is in the description below. As always, I'm very appreciative of all you, and I'll see you next time on for the third episode of our series on the July Crisis of 1914.